Hello. Hello. You're listening to A Little Birdie Told Me, a Winnie Wagtail podcast. I'm your host, Rosie Gundalak. I'm a mum of two and registered midwife. And throughout this series, I'll be speaking with experts in their fields. I'm asking the questions we're all wondering as we fumble and find our way through parenthood. On today's episode, Heba Shahid on pelvic health pre and post baby. When I say pelvic health, what pops into your mind? Periods, going to the loo, lower back pain, incontinence, urinary tract infections or bladder problems, having a baby, the pelvic floor and Kegels. Many of these topics are still quite taboo. We don't like talking about them. We're getting better, but we're not there yet. Pelvic health is something we all need to know more about, both men and women do. It's not just the 85% of women having babies in their life that this relates to. 65% of women and 30% of men in a GP waiting room report some type of urinary incontinence, and yet only 31% of these people have sought help from a health professional. Considering pelvic health plays such an important role in our complete physical, mental, social and sexual well-being, it's something we really need to be onto. With 1 in 10 women living with endometriosis and one quarter of women in the US reporting a pelvic health disorder, this needs to be discussed. We need to learn more about our bodies, our pelvic health, what we can be doing to make ourselves stronger and we've got just the person to speak to today to discuss these topics. We're speaking with Heba Shahid. Heba is the co-founder and CEO of The Pelvic Expert. Heba is a women's health physiotherapist specializing in complex female pain and endometriosis. She's on a mission to educate and empower women about their bodies and break down the barriers surrounding some of the areas of women's health. I spoke to Heba earlier. Hi, Heba. Hi, Rosie. Thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for coming on and having a chat. So I thought we'd probably just jump straight in and talk about what does a women's physio do specializing in pelvic pain? What's a, a normal day for you? Wow. Okay. So a normal day for me. Um, so yeah, I do kind of focus more on pelvic and sexual pain. So um, a clinic day for me would be, I'd probably see between eight to 10 um, women who have um, either a complex pelvic pain condition um, where they might have, for example, period pain or endometriosis. They might have bladder pain syndrome, chronic constipation, and then um, painful sex. So usually I see people have like a combination of all of those coming in. Um, and sometimes um, some of those eight to 10 patients might be women who just have um, pain with sex or they just have vaginismus or vulvodynia. Um, so yeah, they usually come in. I might see like one or two new patients a day, but usually they're um, all kind of follow-up follow up patients. Are women usually referred on um, to you from a GP or from a gynecologist or how, how do women find you normally? How do women find me normally? Through Instagram. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Well, that's good. But sometimes <laughs> I might get occasionally here or there a referral from a GP. Um, and I do have a network of gynecologists um, and they do sometimes refer. But most of my clientele are actually from my own, um, my own marketing. 
How fantastic is that? Good on you. That's fabulous. Well done. <laughs> um, so how did you get it? How did you get into this? How did I get into pelvic pain? So um, yeah. I guess, so it, it, it kind of actually started with my own personal journey. So uh, about 10 years ago, I injured my pelvis um, pretty severely to the point where I couldn't even walk on my right leg. So I was in crutches for like six to nine months. I had to like rehabilitate my pelvis and my leg. And this actually happened from a slight work injury that I did on my first year out of, um, out of university. Um, oh, wow. And I kind of tore, I tore my hamstrings, my glutes. I got like bursitis in my groin, tendonitis all through my legs. And I kind of wasted half of my right like quadriceps, like it was a pretty severe injury. Um, looking back, it's actually pretty hard to remember it because I think I just blocked it out. Um, but yeah, it like, it kind of set me on the path. Like I was trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to heal from this pelvic injury? So I started, um, you know, because I was a physio, I thought, okay, maybe physio can help. Um, so I started yeah. seeing musculoskeletal physios, but then my pain wasn't going, going away at all. Like I was having like 10 out of 10 burning pelvic and leg pain. Um, and I, I couldn't work. Like I was really struggling to work. Every time I went back to work, I would re-injure myself. And so then, mm-hmm. um, and so then in my, in, so then I found this course online, um, for uh, introductory women's health physiotherapy course. Um, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what, like, I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. Like maybe this you know, if I do women's health, I won't re-injure myself. So I went and yeah. did this course. That was kind of the beginning of my journey into women's health. And then as I went through it, I discovered that a lot of the issues in women's health, I had them. Like I had period pain since I was like 14, like pretty severe period pain. 11 years later, I was diagnosed with endometriosis. I've had pretty right. severe chronic constipation um, since childhood. I've had bladder pain syndrome since um since yeah since early teens as well so um yeah it was kind of like suddenly putting together a picture of what was happening in my body was all in this women's health so it's almost like I was kind of guided or directed into women's health and the only way that that would have happened yeah was through this injury that I had um and now I help women who kind of um have been through a very similar story to I have not necessarily injury but they've had pathologies like they've had endometriosis or they've had um, pedendal neuralgia or bladder pain syndrome or interstitial cystitis or whatever and um, putting together kind of a holistic approach for them because I know that it needs to be holistic it's not just this one-sided approach um, so yeah that's kind of how I got into it and yeah I, I love it because you know I've been there myself and also um, I can see the difference in my patients improving because it's like a different approach right oh fantastic so Ideally for our conversation today, I'd love to speak to you about a couple of topics. And the first one I'd love to discuss is pelvic organ prolapse. So when you look at the statistics, one in three mums are experiencing some sort of prolapse after having a baby throughout the rest of their lives, um, which is an insane statistic when, you know, I dare say not many of us really know what it is. So I thought we could just have a little bit of a chat about what is pelvic organ prolapse and what are some of the common symptoms of it and how, you know, there are a lot of us that are walking around with these common symptoms, but they're not normal. And we just sort of brush them aside and think, oh, well, that's just, you know, part of having a baby, but it's not, and that you don't have to put up with them. So do you mind just sort of telling us a bit about pelvic organ prolapse? (laughs) Of course. So pelvic organ prolapse is essentially a sagging that occurs of one or more of your pelvic organs. So your either your bladder, your uterus, or your rectum. And 
the reason this happens is because there is connective tissue. So there's like elastic bands that suspend each of those organs in your pelvis and keep them up nice and high. And if those elastic bands are nice and taut, nice and tight, then the organs are sitting up in a good position. But what can happen usually through birth or it can be through menopause um, or in particular women who have instrumental births like forceps or vacuum, um, those elastic bands that are holding up those organs can become overstretched so they can be lengthened. They think of a really floppy um, elastic. And yeah. so then the organs or, or multiple organs can start to kind of hang down a bit lower. And so what we see um, in the vagina is that if it's a bladder prolapse, then the front wall, so the anterior wall of the vagina kind of, you know, sags down a little bit. If it's a rectal, if it's a prolapse of the rectum, then the posterior wall or the back wall kind of sags down in the vagina a little. If it's a uterine prolapse, then you can sometimes um, feel the cervix is a bit lower. And prolapse can be different stages. So there's stage one, two, three, and four. When it's stage one and two, the organs and the walls of the organs are still inside the vagina. So you're not actually aware really um, from a physical point of view, like uh, from, a, from a visual point of view that there is a prolapse. It's just internal. When it's a stage three or four prolapse, especially if you bear down, you can see um, the walls either coming through the vaginal entrance um, or the cervix coming down through the vaginal entrance. Um, and right. usually the type of prolapse that most women have are the stage one or stage two prolapses. Like, can you feel it even though you can't see it? Is there sort of a dragging sensation or a heaviness? Absolutely. So the main symptoms of pelvic organ prolapse are, um, so some women get this lower back pain that doesn't really go away or this lower back pain that kind of gets worse if they go for long walks or they lift something heavy. Then there's lower abdominal pain. So it's kind of just in that just upper pubic area, you might feel like this, this sensation of just a dull ache. Um, you mm -hmm. might experience, as you mentioned, um, heaviness. So that's what we call pelvic pressure. So people feel like a dragging or heaviness sensation or a pulling sensation. Just feels like something's a little off. Um, some women see a bulge or they feel a bulge or their vagina kind of hangs open a little bit. Um, and then you also can get, you know, at, if the prolapse is a bit more, um, if there's quite a, a bit more stretching of the connective tissue, um, people can then go on to terms like, uh, you know, urinary incontinence or um, feeling like they haven't completely emptied their bladder. There's like, um, they feel like they need to go and do a second way within a few, within a few minutes of the first way, or there's a bit of a dribble. Um, and then if it's, if it's a if it's a bowel if it's a rectum prolapse then they might experience the same sort of thing so incomplete emptying of their bowel or they may experience in some cases um, a bit of loss of control of their wind or loss of control of feces um, maybe some staining in their underwear um, but yeah it's kind of like a bit variable of symptoms it's not always that you see these bladder or bowel symptoms usually the symptoms that you feel in early on are that that kind of you know, uh, pelvic pressure or those lower aches that kind of don't really go away and kind of get worse with um, more activity. Yeah, right. So with, say, incontinence and having that sort of little bit of leakage or feeling like you've got incomplete, um, like emptying of your bladder, is that actually organ prolapse, a pelvic prolapse? Yes, it can be a symptom of pelvic organ prolapse. So the bladder... the But they are the two different things, is that right? Just... To, you, so you, know, you, so you can, 
So you can have stress urinary incontinence or urge urinary incontinence as a result of pelvic organ prolapse. So right, it could okay. be the cause and effect thing. So you can, it's, it's not that, so it's, it's, incontinence is a symptom. It's, even though they call it a diagnosis, they say, oh, you have incontinence as a diagnosis, but it's actually a symptom. Loss of bladder control right. is a symptom. And what is it a symptom of? It's a symptom either of connective tissue failure, so that's pelvic organ prolapse, or pelvic yeah. floor muscle failure, which is um, where your muscles are either weak or on the other side they can be too tight or they just do not coordinate properly. So even pelvic floor muscle involvement isn't necessarily, oh, I'm leaking because I have a weak pelvic floor. You could be leaking because the pelvic floor muscles aren't coordinating well, but your pelvic floor is strong. So it's very dependent on, yeah, that's right. And I guess that all just comes down to then seeing someone like you for assessment. Absolutely. So a pelvic floor physio is the best person position to be able to determine the actual the actual dysfunction, the actual pelvic floor dysfunction or connective tissue dysfunction that you have. And how is it diagnosed? Is it through ultrasound or do you do internal examinations or, you know, how do you gauge the strength or lack of strength of someone's pelvic floor? So diagnosis of pelvic organ prolapse, for example, is we usually do a vaginal exam. So um, I will have a look down there and I will ask the woman to do a bearing down or valsalva movement and Mm -hmm. based on that i can see how much of her walls are moving and depending on how much of her walls are moving i can grade her a stage one two three four and i can also grade each of the prolapses is it a bladder is it a urine is it a a rectum prolapse and um, that's done through a vaginal exam through a trained pelvic floor physio who is trained in pelvic organ prolapse so the thing to keep in mind is that not all pelvic floor physios are equal Some of us are trained in prolapse, some of us aren't. Some of us are trained in pain, some of us aren't. And um, how do do we determine the strength of a pelvic floor muscle? Um, Again, this is through a vaginal exam, um, but there there is also little gadgets and stuff that can help, but I personally just do it through um, my finger assessment. So if you were to talk someone through engaging their pelvic floor, how how would you do it? First thing I want you to do is just take a very slow, deep and wide breath in, stretching the breath into the side and back of your belly and ribs. And then at the top of your inhale, gently squeeze and lift your pelvic floor, imagining that you're holding your wean or you're tightening around a tampon or tightening around your partner. And then hold that contraction as you continue to breathe out. Keep squeezing, keep lifting, keep squeezing, keep lifting, keep squeezing, keep lifting. Now relax the pelvic floor down and take a deep, wide breath into the belly and the side and back of the ribs. And hold that as you exhale. How often should we be doing this as women? So this really depends on the woman. So if a woman comes in with stress urinary incontinence and it is because of poor coordination, I might um, get her to do like five to 10 of these breathing um, plus pelvic floor holds on exhale, just five to 10 every hour or so to just get her brain to reconnect to those muscles um, in the proper way, because this is motor retraining. So this isn't about strength. This is about getting your brain to remember that this is the coordination of the muscle. And so the more you do that, um, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that you do more repetitions. It means that you do it more times a day. The more signals you send 
from your nerves to your brain that this is how it needs to work. So it's about just getting that brain to do it eventually automatically. If it's a person who has urgency-related incontinence, I wouldn't really be encouraging her to do this because urgency may be actually the prolapse or it could be that her muscles are too tight. So I wouldn't really be focusing on pelvic floor exercises for her. just depends. I'd have to figure out what the actual true nature of it is. Um, If it's a woman who has weak pelvic floor, so I assess her and her muscles are very weak, they don't contract, um, then I might be getting her to do, so it would be more of a strength training program. So it would be um, three sets of 12 pelvic floor squeezes followed by 10 to 15 fast, quick, quick, quick ones, like trying to squeeze and relax, squeeze and relax as quick as you can. So again, it's just dependent on what the woman presents with. That's why I don't really give blanket exercises anymore because- Yeah, no, I understand. uh, one in three have prolapse and one in five have tight pelvic floors. And postnatally, a lot of women actually have painful sex. So that's already telling me that their muscles are kind of a little bit tight. Like even some of the research says up to 80% of women will experience pain with sex. That's not necessarily vaginal dryness or, um, you know, it, it could also be that the muscles, the scar tissue and the muscles are tight. So I just try to like, you know, just be aware you know, and you kind of can kind of judge, is my muscles weak? Is my muscles strong? Some people can't tell. And if so, it's best to see a pelvic floor physio. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Just on painful sex, we could probably talk to um, this point now. Uh, one of um, the Instagram followers um, on my page sent me a private message about painful sex and talking about how pre-baby everything was fine and uh, now um, post-baby um, she's experiencing pain and has been googling topics like vaginismus and um, I've just had a, a quick squeeze on some um, statistics this morning and it says that at four months postpartum 62% of women indicated physical discomfort when having sex and at 12 months that drops to 16%. But that's still a lot of women to be um, having painful sex when everything was fine before a baby. So would you like to um, just tell us a little bit about vaginismus and um, how the role of a pelvic um, health physio with a topic like that? Yeah, so with, um, with painful sex, there's a few different reasons. So if we go back to pelvic organ prolapse, some women have pelvic organ prolapse and that's why they're having painful sex. So they might have, um, they're having sex and the partner is hitting up against their cervix because the cervix is sitting lower. If they have a uterine prolapse, they can also present with painful sex. So that's, that's where we need to figure out firstly, what is it? So number one, it could be prolapse. Number two, mm-hmm. it could be vaginismus. So vaginismus is where um, the muscles of the pelvic floor, specifically at the entrance, but can also be deeper into the pelvic floor, become very tight. Um, and if it, if they've never had tight pelvic floor or painful sex in the past, this is what we call secondary vaginismus. Um, and this can be as a result of a number of different factors. So in the post-birth situation, hormonally, we are, um, you know, pro, especially if you're breastfeeding, prolactin inhibits the production of estrogen, which dries stuff up. So down there, yep. Um, you become a bit drier, the skin becomes thinner. It's just not conducive to having any type of penetrative um, intercourse. And so um, women who then go on and try and have penetrative sex um, where the environment isn't conducive to it, they then create a memory of pain there, right? So it could be simply a hormonal thing. It could be, um, the other thing that it could be is scar tissue. So if you have given birth and you've had some tearing, whether it's a perineal tear 
or an intravaginal tear, or it could be an episiotomy, which as it heals, develops scar tissue. And we know that scar tissue as it heals can be uncomfortable and painful. Definitely. Um, so in this, in this situation, and especially I find we have a huge problem in that women aren't taught to do scar tissue massage or they aren't encouraged to go and see a physio who can do scar tissue massage um, because you, you do need to release those fibers. So like, you know, if, if a person has a shoulder surgery, they're often um, referred to a physio to get some scar tissue massage done on their shoulder scar. Well, the same thing here, like you're, you're the vagina and the pelvic floor are muscles too, but they also need to have some scar tissue massage done. And a lot of my, with, with my patients, I will often get them to start some scar tissue massage, you know, four, six or eight weeks postpartum, just get a bit of, you know, coconut oil or something and just start okay. to release the tissues down there to help, um, you know, get just free up the tissue basically. Um, I definitely hadn't come across us giving the recommendation of a scar massage. That's a really valid point we should be speaking more about with women on the postnatal wards. That's absolutely. That's and this is, I wish, yeah, I, I feel like this is kind of something that we really need to encourage, especially the ones who've had, you know, second or third degree or fourth degree tears, like there's quite a lot of scar tissue in there. And we also know that um, a lot of third and fourth degree tears do not get repaired immediately. A lot of them mm. are occult injuries. Um, so a lot of them experience a lot of scar tissue pain and rectal pain and perineal pain for, you know, months and months, sometimes even up to a year after birth. Um, so it's just being mindful that all of that tissue needs to heal and needs to be supported. Um, yeah. So then the other thing is um, some women just go on to develop um, pain with sex after birth just randomly. And it could be because, you know, you're so stressed after birth, you know, especially if it's a new baby and you've got lots going on, you're breastfeeding, you're not sleeping well, you know, just the whole, um, you know, culmination of everything. You kind of go into a tense state. A lot of women don't do much self-care. They're not having regular massages. They're not you know, they're not able to exercise as much as they used to. So things kind of get tense and tight. And that's why sometimes women then go on to develop a vaginismus type of um, uh, 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 sexual pain. Um, and again, so what, what do we do in this situation? So um, what happens in vaginismus, as I said, the muscles get very tight. So who do you need to see? A pelvic floor physio who, whose um, line of treatment is sexual pain. So not all pelvic mm -hmm. floor physios do sexual pain. Um, but then what we normally do, so in my clinic, so I know that there's different approaches across different clinics, but in my clinic, I do a lot of um, soft tissue work. So I do a lot of touch-based therapy. So I do vagin intravaginal muscle releases, um, a lot of down training, relaxation of the pelvic floor, breathing exercises, stretches. Um, in some clinics, they use dilators. And I do sometimes use dilators if it is um, a primary vaginismus where the muscles are very short. But often I find post-birth, it's not short muscles. It's, um, it's just it's non-relaxing muscles. It's hypertonic muscles. So these ones are where I teach them to relax. And I do a lot of touch-based and, and, and train, uh, coaching type of stuff to help teach them to relax. In pregnancy, we've got a um, lot of hormones raging around our bodies. One in particular is relaxin, which is that relaxing hormone to, to get our bodies prepped for birth. But with this hormone can come some signs and symptoms of pubic symphysis discomfort and sacroiliac joint pain. And I thought maybe we could just discuss some exercises to avoid and exercises to help these problems. 
Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, all the hormones in our body, not just relaxant, but even that skyrocketing amount of progesterone and estrogen, the whole purpose is to soften all of our connective tissue and our ligaments so that we're able to, you know, the, the con- conducive to birth, right? But yeah, yeah. The, then you get this flip side of these issues. And so um, pubic symphysis pain and sacroiliac joint pain um, are basically just, you know, that the softening of those ligaments kind of in, in, in and around your pelvis. So what kind of exercises can we do? Right? The guidelines for exercise are whatever you've been doing before pregnancy, you should be able to do in pregnancy and you can even progress them. If you haven't been doing any exercise previous to pregnancy, you can begin a new exercise regime in pregnancy and progress that as well. So there's no issue here. Okay, so in terms of what exercises to avoid, it's actually a bit of a tough one because um, there's not really much, you don't really need to avoid exercises if you've already been doing them pre-pregnancy. Like if you've already been doing a lot of exercise, you know, it could be anything, whatever you were doing, even... even, So if um, you were doing, say, like wide-legged squats um, uh, in pre-pregnancy, you can continue doing them... Um, in pregnancy, I wasn't sure if that was a thing or not because I know that yeah. I, I like with my second baby, um, I got a lot of pubic pain um, throughout the later stage of um, my pregnancy, and found that squatting and um, even like walking up hills, I, I could it was almost like a grinding I could feel, and I wore one of those um, pregnancy belts um, to sort of take the pressure off my pubic bone, but done a bit of research myself on it um i thought squatting was something that could exacerbate it is that right so this is kind of where you kind of have to use your own personal experience and your own intuition so if something feels not right then it probably means that you don't have the right muscle engagement to do it but there's actually no problem in doing wide leg squats and in fact when i used to teach um classes uh, pregnancy classes I used to teach wide-legged squats we used to do tons of them and we used to do oh, um, amazing what what holds like wide-legged squat holds in lower positions because the reason why I encourage these type of exercises is because we want to encourage an active birth as well so women yeah. need to develop the endurance to hold active birth positions um, when when they're in labor and the way that we do that is in pregnancy and hopefully even in pre-pregnancy, you're building up the muscle endurance because if you, have, if you don't have any muscle strength or endurance in your quads and your hamstrings and your glutes, you're, you're, you're going to end up lying on your back on, on the totally. bed. So Labor is totally a marathon. <laughs> that's right. So that's exactly yeah. right. So marathon. So yeah. what do you need to do? You need to train for your marathon, right? Yeah, completely. So a lot of, I do a lot of, so, um, yeah, I, I would do everything. And like some people even say, oh, that women with uh, women shouldn't do lunges. But I used to do tons of lunges with my patients um, okay. uh, to like really build up their strength and endurance. So if you do already have pelvic girdle dysfunction, which is pubic symphysis or sacroiliac, that means all it means is that there's a failure of load transfer. That's all it is. It's not that you can't do stuff. It's that something in your um, in your body has failed to transfer load so um, usually it's that women have uh, not engaged their gluteus maximus on one side a lot of women get right-sided pelvic pain for example it's usually the the glute 
if you're getting a lot of pubic bone pain, it means that you're putting a lot of weight on the front of your feet. So that means you're using a lot of your quads and you're using a lot of your adductor muscle, which means that you're underusing your posterior chain, which is your gluteus muscles, right? And your deep yeah. hip rotator. So you need more weight on your heels. So sometimes it's something as simple as when you're walking and you're going up the stairs or going up hills or whatever, just make sure you've got a bit of weight on your heels. If you're yeah. doing your squats, make sure that your weight is transferred into your heels so you can feel your butt muscles working. So all it is a lot of the time is just poor form. So as soon as we get them into a good form and then they're using their glutes because the glutes are the powerhouse of your pelvis, okay? Your glutes are the yeah. powerhouse of your pelvis. And the more your glutes are engaged, the less pelvic girdle pain you'll have. And actually, we know that people who have pelvic girdle pain, that the, the, the most effective thing that you could ever do is exercise and exercise that loads your pelvis, which is squats and lunges and bridges and anything that, that really makes a whole them. lot of sense. That makes yeah. a whole lot of sense. I've got weak glutes and I'm constantly trying to work on my booty. So it's no, <laughs> wonder, no, no wonder why I had such dramas with it in my second pregnancy. That makes total sense. In regards to ab separation and or diastasis recti, what are you doing to avoid it? Like I know we always say to women, roll over onto your side before you get up from lying down. What should we be doing to um, sort of avoid making an ab separation worse because most women are going to end up with some degree of abdominal um, separation. All women will have abdominal separation. So by the yeah. end of your pregnancy, a hundred percent of women are going to have separation of that diastasis recti, um, well, rectus abdominis muscle, and that's that's completely normal because you've got this big baby. You, totally, well, you've got everything baby. stretched. Yeah, it has to. Like your yeah. connective tissue needs to stretch. So the issue that we have is that postnatally. Um, you, you get a poor, again, it's low transfer, poor low transfer through your abdominal wall. So you can have a two, three centimeter abdominal wall separation, um, you know, 10 years after giving birth, but you're able to transfer low. So it's, um, you're, you know, you're not having any pain, you're not having any incontinence, you're not having any issues at all, but you still have this separation. So what, what I want to stress is that it doesn't actually matter if you have a gap between your rectus there's actually no it's actually not a problem the problem is if you're unable to transfer load through it so what happens is that you you start doming your abdomen or you get that mm -hmm. bread top look or um or or you start to have symptoms so you start to have lower back pain or you have urinary incontinence or you have uh, a prolapse that isn't getting better or you have fecal incontinence so if you're having pelvic floor symptoms then that aren't getting better and, and also you're doming your abdominal wall then that's when I'm thinking, okay, there's an issue. So the actual gap isn't an issue. It's whether you can transfer load. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure that the entire core system is engaging optimally. So the core is made up of four muscles. Your diaphragm, which is your breathing muscle, your pelvic yes. floor, which is the bottom part, your, um, your transversus abdominis muscle, which is the fourth layer of abdominal muscle. So it's right deep in and it surrounds your spine. And then you have your deep back muscle, which is your multifidus muscle. So all four of these muscles need to work in synergy together. Okay. So when it's like we talked about before, when you breathe in, that diaphragm should expand. And when you breathe out, that pelvic floor should engage, but also your deep abdominal muscle, that transversus abdominal muscle, that feeling of tightening, tightening like a corset around your spine, um, that muscle should be engaging as you exhale. Mm -hmm. And then once all four of those muscles are working, 
the layering of your global muscles on top. So the core muscles are on first, then the glutes are on, then the, the adductors are on, then the, the, the superficial tummy and the superficial back muscles are on, and the arm muscles and so on. So with a re diastasis rectus abdominis muscle or DRAM or DRA, dra, whatever you call it, um, yeah. I just want you guys to keep in mind that it's not about the gap. It's about whether you can transfer load and that you're symptom-free postnatally like i know midwives postnatally on the wards or out in the community will do a sort of finger assessment should women also be going and seeing a physio after having a baby sort of regardless or do you think only if you have symptoms i am of the opinion and school of thought that every single woman at 4 or 6 or 8 weeks postpartum should be seeing a pelvic floor physio or a women's health physio, because we can pick stuff up that may not be manifesting, right? So you could have a pelvic organ prolapse and you don't know it, um, but then, you know, three years later, you start to exhibit symptoms. Because the thing is, our body's really good at compensating for dysfunction. Our body's really amazing. It's really good at compensating. So you can um, have an issue, but your body will find some way to compensate for it. But the thing is, over time, those compensatory mechanisms start to fail because they're not optimal. So you don't start to exhibit symptoms until you continue to fail in those compensatory mechanisms. So, so you might start to exhibit symptoms maybe after your second child, right? So that's when yeah. you have that compensatory mechanism. Or you might start to exhibit symptoms when you start going to the gym and lifting heavier weights. It's not that the heavier weights was the problem. It's that you already had a prolapse or whatever it was to begin with, but it just it got... It was just undiagnosed. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And then we're also really good at, you know, the scar tissue thing. Like we, we, can, we can start releasing scar tissue. Um, we can pick up if somebody's had, a, you know, a, an anal sphincter tear that was, wasn't picked up, right? We can, yeah. um, we, we can start address. we can look at your pelvic floor. Like maybe your pelvic floor is working, so you're not incontinent, but when we actually assess you, it's really, really weak and it's only a matter of time before you become incontinent. So some people start to exhibit incontinence six months after birth, for example. So it's like if you go really early, um, we can pick up all of these things so that they don't get worse and you we avoid get problems down the track. Yeah, it's a preventative yeah. sort of thing. But if you already have symptoms, then yeah, we can start to address them early on so that they don't get worse over time as well. And, the, and women don't need a referral. They can just call up and make an appointment. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. Um, primary healthcare practitioners, so you can come straight to a pelvic floor physio. Oh, well, that is a very good place to leave it. I think that's fantastic. All your evidence and information today, Heba, has been so beneficial, I'm sure, to a lot of women. I now all of a sudden want to quickly get, go off to a, a pelvic physio and get checked after my <laughs> second baby because I didn't see anyone. I had her over in Hong Kong and that was just oh, wow. not a thing over there. So now um, I'll definitely be trying to track someone down in Brizzy. Thank you yeah, so sure. much, Heba. I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, we've learned a whole lot about pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic instability and abdominal separation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rosie. It was a pleasure. Our conversation today was with Heba Shahid. Heba can be contacted on Instagram at thepelvicexpert or on her website, thepelvicexpert.com.